everybody, and welcome to another edition of RZ Weekly, Hanukkah edition, Festival of Lights. We're here with Rabbi Johnny Salman, Rabbi Nid Malibrovsky. Here to discuss, as we're on Hanukkah, we thought we would uh, look into our mailbag and reply to uh, a communication we received from a listener on, uh, on Facebook. So I'm going to read the, 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 uh, the message that we got. And then um, each of us will respond in our own way. So this is in, in some ways about spreading the light. So I think it's a good topic for us to discuss. Hello, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. So first of all, thank you. We enjoy that you enjoy it. I have an idea for a future podcast. How does religious Zionism look at slash relate to reaching out to the non-religious and bring them closer to a Torah observant lifestyle? Are helping slash enabling people to be Ba'ale Tshuva something that drives religious Zionism? Are we concerned about how intermarriage and assimilation are eating away at whatever remains of the non-Orthodox Jewish community in many countries, especially America? When people think about outreach Judaism or Kiruv, we usually think of Chabad, Esha Torah, or more, uh, other more Haredi groups. Can religious Zionism be relevant in bringing the non-religious Jews back into the fold? So there's a lot to unpack, a lot to unpack in that question, and uh, whether we even agree with the question or not. So I think we'll start with... Um, I think we'll start with Johnny. Johnny, uh, do we care about Kirov? And if we do, where? How? Um, okay, great question on Hanukkah Sameach to you and to all our listeners. Um, I think we care a lot, but I do think there are significant uh, qualities of Kirov that emerge from the Datil or Me world, which perhaps are different to uh, other organizations or other communities around the world. Datilomi ultimately is a subgroup of Jews living in Israel that align themselves with both religious values and laws and certain aspects of national identity. And that means uh, that identity is utterly entrenched in the state of Israel, uh, if not living here but associating with it. And the concerns, therefore, are broad, broad across the community, across the population. And so I suppose that Atilo Mi World operates on a more nationalistic level in terms of how it views and operates uh, and, and tries to do, if you could call it that, outreach or Kiruv Chokin. I think there is a lot more soft outreach in the Datilo Mi World, but not so much hard outreach. There have been discussions recently about attempts to strengthen hard outreach because, of course, people know... Uh, and, and associate work with and relatives with those who are less observant. But there is a certain delicate balance and, and, and uh, situ- where, where the Datilo Mi world situates itself. It wishes not to rock the boat so much. So I think that kind of notion of soft outreach seems to be much more comfortable for the community overall. And moreover, some may claim that the Datilo Mi world perhaps has its own challenges and... Uh, does it really have so much to, in terms of, of teaching others? I would, of course, say yes. But there are those who claim that the, the fusion of Jewish life that is reflective of the Tilo Mi world perhaps is hard to both communicate and perhaps itself brings, brings along such challenges. And thus some of the kind of uh, more um, uh, black and white uh, Kirov organizations, those that wish to to communicate simple ideas in a compelling way uh, may be more successful in that setting. So those are just some initial remarks. 
Okay, before, but before I throw it to Molly, I want to point out that I, I personally, uh, on the one hand, I recoil a little bit from the, from the framing of the question. For the very simple reason that I think, at least to me, the idea of Kiruv, and maybe this speaks to the complexity that Johnny was referring to, Kiruv means I have something, I am close, you are far, I want to bring you close. It's very paternalistic, the whole idea of Kiruv that I have the answers and you have the questions and I'm going to bring you close to what I have. Uh, and I think that more than anything, that paternalism is something that I, I personally, I have, I have trouble with on the one hand. At the same time, what I do in my, in my work life, I, I, I direct an organization that I haven't spoken about this extensively. It's called Damiyaba Kihila. And on behalf of the Jewish, uh, of, the, uh, of the state of Israel, I send people around the world to teach Judaism and connect them to Israeliness and to connect them to Jewish values and Jewish culture uh, and, and in such a way to allow people to find their way to express their Jewish identity. So I don't call it Kirov, I don't use the word Kirov, but I do speak, I, I do spend my, every, pretty much every waking hour trying to think of ways to allow Jews to connect to their Jewish identity and to God and to, and to the Jewish people in meaningful ways. So do you call that Kirov, Johnny? Would you call that Kirov? I, I don't call it Kirov. But I, I do think that, that the connection of Jews to God, to the Jewish people, to their heritage, is something that the religious Zionist world thinks is very, very important and engages in all the time, invests many, many hundreds of millions of shkalim in. You know, just think about the organizations called Machon Meir and Torah Mitzion and Mizrahi and Bnei Akiva Olami and Yavna Olami. These are all organizations, institutions that people don't think of as Kirov, but they're engaged in spreading Judaism literally around the world. So it might be, might be a branding issue more than anything else. Yeah, Johnny. One second. I, 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 I do think that's a, perhaps a form of outreach. Uh, certainly it's a sense of shlichut. I think that's perhaps a word that we'd be more used to using here in Israel. Oh, right. Nonetheless, uh, I, I do challenge your definition of Kirov in terms of it necessarily being a paternalistic endeavor, because you speak about answers, I have answers, you don't. Uh, and that frames Kirov in terms of knowledge. But uh, who's to say that Kirov is all about knowledge? Uh, you know, it's an emotionally intelligent endeavor. It's about sharing opportunities. When a person says, I want to bring you to an event that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable in going to, I'm not necessarily gonna teach you ideas, but I'm gonna give you the opportunity to experience something you haven't experienced before. Surely bringing somebody to a Shabbat table where they enjoy Shabbat foods and sing Shabbat songs, that can be classically defined as Kirov, but not about answers, but instead about experiences. So, oh, interestingly enough. So let's say, for example, the, I, I understand what you're saying, but nonetheless, I, I, it's taken on, I think it's taken on a very paternalistic, uh, I would say, tone. In the, in the world in which we live. And, and people are recoiling from it. And I can only tell you that in the, in, the, in the avenues in which I live, like there's a certain, there's a great reluctance to bring the Orthodox in because they're going to tell us what to do. They're, they're very paternalistic. And as a huge challenge, they're trying to engage uh, communities that are not Orthodox in the context of, of Israel and Jewish culture and Jewish values because they feel threatened. You're going to try to make us more like you as opposed to allowing us to find our way which I think is something that we have to, that, that's important to, to, to think about. All right, let's turn it to Molly, because um, Molly, how do you respond to the question, do we care in your perspective about Kirov? Are we engaged in Kirov? 
Yeah, so I think when I started thinking about the question, I started thinking a little bit historically. I think that there's a understanding, um, a broad understanding that there was an explosion in what we would call Kirov after the War in 1967. Uh, I think that, first of all, I, I, I'm just assuming that like, you know, the years between 1948 and 1967 are post-Holocaust, people were just kind of rebuilding their lives. But there seems to be a, a clear sense that after the miracles of the Six-Day War, that kind of galvanized a it's an interest in um, in in Judaism and Jewish pride. And I think that that did start a cure of explosions, certainly. So I want to before I turn, I want to say that I, I'm not sure that the question. I, I agree 100% with the question because, like I'm, you know, shout out to my cousins who spend their entire life dedicated to NCSY. Right, meaning um, after sixty after nineteen sixty seven, there was an explosion in Balei Tshuva that returned, that, you know, that were returning to interest in Judaism, and there are definitely organizations, certainly in Chutzlaretz, that have been attempting to do that under an Orthodox umbrella. So that that's just you know something I thought was important to say. But I do think that it's interesting to then think about you know what what Johnny was saying, which was how this plays out specifically in the Datilu in the Israeli world. And I, th I think it's quite fascinating because there's definitely a phenomenon that, that um, I remember, and I think I even mentioned it on this podcast, I'm quite struck by how I assumed when I came to Israel that Datilumi was the same as modern orthodoxy and it wasn't in this way. And there seems to, and again, this seems to be like a cultural, a phenomenon that people are culturally aware of, that in Israel, the Six-Day War didn't galvanize the religious, the Datilumi community to reach out, it galvanized them to raid the hilltops, right? And I think that, um, Johnny, you had mentioned a little bit before this podcast, you know, Rav Cook's vision, Rav Cook's vision of reaching out to the world, what happened to Rav Cook's vision, was quite, so it's quite interesting that it was actually his son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, who basically so inspired by the events of 1967 that he basically... Um, the word in Hebrew was machtiv. He basically set the agenda for the entire Datilumi community, I would say, which was our our mission as as the religious Zionist world is to now settle the um, you know Eretz Yisrael, settle settle the hilltops of Yehudava Shomeron. And I've quite often heard the critique that the religious Zionist community, you know, screamed Acharai, ran off into the hilltops and forgot to turn around and realize that nobody was following them. Um, and that, that that was one of the things that created one of the rifts in Israeli society. Um, and, and, and it kind of, we ended up segregating both physically, living in different communities, and also ideologically. And for many, many years, I think the tensions between the left, the right, uh, religious, secular, were, were exacerbated by this sense of Yudatiyim, who are, you know, living in Yehudah Shamron and, and what that implies also politically and, and, and in other ways. And I, I think, though, that um, the things are changing in that perspective. I remember after the expulsion from Gush Katif, uh, I was having a discussion with my husband about how the religious community should respond to, to Gush Katif. And he said, well, maybe uh, a good response of the rabbis who are really scrambling to catch up with what message to give their communities, because they, did, in my humble opinion, were not giving them, most, most Dati Lumi rabbis were not giving them healthy messages before the expulsion, he said, this is the moment for the rabbis to turn to their communities and said, we failed, right? We didn't, um, we didn't settle in people's hearts. We, we settled in our own hearts and we didn't spread out. And maybe these communities should now, the Tilumi communities should realize that 
you know, one of the humbling messages of the recognition that nobody was with them in their battle to save Gush Katif is that we need a little bit more um, kind of connection among among factions in Israel. And, and here it's interesting what Ruby's saying, because, just going to finish up this point, because um, um, I think it's true that in Israel, it, it, it can't, it, it, people are very wary, at least in the Dati Lumi world, about paternalism, paternalism and that it's much more, they're trying much more to make it about, um, you know, common language, common culture, the, the Aaron has is not just the you know the books the books the Jewish books the Jewish texts are not just for the religious people we want to see more secular people for example at Chitona Tanakh let's have all kinds of dialogue um, and and again I think part of that is because there's a sensitivity to how much religion because we're not we're not a state that has separation of church and state how much religion is a tinderbox in this country for all kinds of uh, tensions and I have one more point but I'll wait to say it till so I want to I want to sort of pick up on what Molly's Molly said and relate back to the question. Because when, when we asked, are we concerned about intermarriage and our intermarriage and assimilation are eating away at whatever remains of the non-Orthodox Jewish community in many countries? So by definition in Israel, you're, you're struggling with a fundamentally different question, which is, the, which is a question about, you know, let's, assuming, okay, intermarriage is, is a problem, I would say, you know, despite what the, I guess Yad Eliezer says, inter intermarriage is something of a concern, you know, for a very limited amount of people. Intermarriage is not a problem in Israel unless people make Yerida, that's another problem, but people by and large marry Jews. So, and assimilation, also less of a problem because you, if you stay in Israel, you're, you're by and large, you have, you have your Jewish identity. So the question is one of connection and association. So I volunteer also in an organization I work for, an organization called Sohar. And uh, we do literally thousands of weddings for secular couples a year. So is that kiruv per se? There is no kiruv going on at all. There's no, like, the, the whole point of the organization is not to try to necessarily get people to have a religious, be, be more religious per se, but to have, they are, because of the state, by definition, required to have a religious experience or a religious uh, tekes, a religious event in their life, in their life. So the idea of Torah is to say, well, if they're going to have this experience in, in the religious setting with a religious person, shouldn't it be a good experience? Shouldn't it be an enriching experience? Shouldn't it be a positive experience? So now, is that Kiruv? Is that bringing people closer? I mean, Imali's kind of nodding. You know, and would an American uh, Jew call that Kiruv? It's a really interesting so, question. Because it's, it's, not, it's not trying to get people to change their lives. It's trying to get people to have a, a deeper, more enriching experience in the Jewish experiences that they're going to anyway otherwise have. So and I, I think that that's say, something yes, that, that's fundamentally different about Israel than you would have in, in the Chutzla'aretz where the, the cultural um, direction and the river of, of people's lives is taking them literally away from Judaism and they won't have, unless somebody in Kiruv comes and says, come light the Hanukkah candles, and he drags them to a Hanukkah party, they'll never see Hanukkah candles. As opposed to in Israel, Every single restaurant you go to, literally, somebody came and lit Hanukkah candles and you see the lights and it's all around you and you, it's unavoidable because it's on every billboard and every street, you know, like just think, like the, the you, you drive down the Ayalon Highway and next to the, you know, 
next to the, the, the billboard for the naked girl who's selling her perfume, there's also a huge, huge building-sized billboard for Sufganiyot. So it's, it's just a different animal here. Johnny, you had something you wanted to say. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. We're considering the, the prioritization of Kiruv uh, amongst the Tilumi world and exactly what that means. And I use the distinction between soft Kiruv and, and the hard, hard Kiruv. And I think there are differences in Kiruv opportunities, such as Rabban Tsar doing weddings, uh, and also perhaps the general um, messaging, which is at least do no harm. You know, if you're going to a wedding, at least people should have a wedding. They don't get frustrated or aggravated by, uh, by rabbinic bodies who perhaps don't speak to them necessarily in a manner that is as welcome as it could be. But we also need to... And Johnny, that's not Kirov. Do no harm is not Kirov. Do no harm is, do, is anti-Rihuk, which is good, which is right, supported. Right, I, uh, but, but that's what I'm saying. I, I think that for some people, uh, the, some people in the Datilio Mi world, they may not necessarily be active in terms of positive outreach, but they'd say at the very least, we try and do no harm. I don't think that's enough. What I would say, though, is there's a difference between the not-religious Jew in North America or the UK and necessarily the not-religious Jew here in Israel. Of course, there are some not-religious Jews, or not yet religious Jews, to be more specific, or not fully religious, uh, who simply... Wait, wait, one second, one second. I have to stop you on that, because therein, those, in those two things that you just said, not-religious Jew, not-yet-religious Jew, are not fully religious Jew, and I, I hear what you're trying. I, I heard that those distinctions are exactly the point we're trying to talk about. Not fully religious Jew or not yet religious Jew is extremely paternalistic, meaning we're all, what I thought you meant is we're all religious in our own way, and some people express it in some ways and some people express it in others. Whereas a Kira person would say, we would say, well, one second, I judge you or you evaluated, God evaluates or whoever by your level of religiosity, and we're all this nitzotz, our Nitzotz and Neshama wants to come out, and I'm going to help you bring it out because you're not yet religious. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, no, I mean, but that, you're confusing my, how I intent, uh, attempt in, uh, uh, to uh, inspire you in your journey of Judaism and uh, how, my, how I um, kind of manipulate you in living my version of Judaism. I don't think one necessarily has to be the other. Let me just finish the point for a second, which is many, although by no means all, uh, uh, Jews living in Israel do make choices. That means some simply aren't yet fully religious um, uh, because they don't care. But many actually do care. Simply put, if you meet somebody who is Jewish but not caring in North America, it's likely because they haven't had uh, great education, great opportunities, whatever, whatever. And then there's a general sense that uh, if you, you know, bring opportunities to such a person, is likely to be appreciated if done in the right way. Here, there is a resistance, oftentimes, because there's a narrative of why that person is who they are and where they are. And so perhaps part of the... I have to stop you. I have to interrupt. Okay. Johnny, I can interrupt. I don't agree with that at all. Tell me. At all. I don't think... I think that people in Chutzla'aretz who are not religious are consciously not religious. I think there's an anti-religious tone, and I think legitimately so, in the culture that sees religious, religion as primitive and, and provincial and uh, not, rele not relevant to, to everyday life. And your attempt to try to bring that to them, you know, for most people is not, is not something that they're looking forward to, but something that you're trying to inculcate them with and, uh, and not, as, as opposed to inspire. So I don't agree with, I don't think my experience has not been- you think that doesn't exist here? I definitely think that exists here as well. 
but uh, I don't. I think that for sure it definitely it definitely exists also in chutzarts as well. Molly. Okay, so first of all, I think it, it's not as black and white. I think in America you have both types of streams, right? You definitely have people who just uh, innocently want to be more knowledgeable, and then you have people who are very clear about who they are, what they want to be. But I, I, I liked I liked how you you framed it, and again, I want to bring it back the Israeli conversation back to um, like like the positive perspective versus the do no harm perspective, right? So the positive perspective, I think, to view like the way, you know, that's so hard and the, what, what, what Johnny called soft Kirov, I think is the, the positive piece of that is the Jewsraeli part that we've been talking about and that Ruby's been talking about, which is that our whole mentality is, um, is, is, is more about Jewish identity and being a one people and we're all brothers and uh, you know uh, we're sh- you know you know that song that you know the last 70 years song that they put out mm-hmm. um you know and like you've got the chilonim and like that's the idea that every and like i think that Tilumi people want to foster that because they see that as at least we're all connected um i agree with johnny and this is a thorny question that we have to ask ourselves as religious Jews, like if we really believe um, in Torah and Halacha, how, you know, like, um, I don't, I, I think the challenge is how do you convey that without being paternalistic? Uh, the, again, the way Rav Cook said it is, um, I say that I have half the truth, right? My glass is half full, but you also have truth, the Chiloni world, and you have a certain anava about that, in terms, certainly in terms of historical reality, about what the Chilonim were able to accomplish, that the team were not able to accomplish. Uh, but what I really wanted to say is also, um, again, this, this, this do no harm thing is, is really important in Israel because unfortunately, there's been a lot of harm done and there's so much terror mm-hmm. and there's so much, people have had so many negative experiences when they have interacted with traditional religious, um, certainly, um, um, what's the word? established authorities authorities people of authority i I would even add to what you say molly that every time they turn on the radio you have major political figures complaining bitterly about religious coercion exactly and so it's and so it's i think people have to be very careful about how yes to do here of you know anywhere on the spectrum between soft and hard i also want to say that i do think though that there is a movement towards it it's interesting to me for example my daughter was part of a Garin Torani, these Garinim these Torani, which are popping up all over the country, and I think it's probably happening more and more, where religious people are moving into um, different areas of the country. Usually it's not just, and, and they're bringing them relig- religious values and religious identity, but usually they're going also into communities that are under um, socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic yeah. levels, all kinds of uh, different um social complexities and they're helping those communities now what i do think is interesting is that most of those garinim are more in the chardal spectra meaning there is there is a correlation and this goes back to the question and and i think it's part of the conversation the more um you move out of the datilumi world and you move more into a world that sees things with a little bit more of a black and white perspective, whether that's that, whether that's a Khardali world or it's a Haredi world, they have an easier time doing Kirov because um, they're, they're more comfortable making black and white statements. And the more, beca- either because our hashkafa is a little bit more complex um, or because we don't want to sound paternalistic or because we don't believe in paternalism, I think the more you move 
the more the less black and white you are, and the more complex you are, uh, the more it becomes difficult. The less, the less you'll see this tofa'a, but I, but I do hope that like we do find a uniquely Israeli way to to yes do more kirov. And I, I also think that that the, the, the Lumi community, if we do want to move into this, does have to be careful about like it not just being about culture, but also about values, because. It's very easy to conflate the two and to say, "Oh, it's awesome that you know every bus is Hanukkah Sameach and that everybody's eating Sufganiyot." But if it if it just remains cultural and 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 people don't understand the values behind it, uh, we might throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I, do, I want to add, Molly. I yeah, just make one, one more point, point just because yeah, yeah. I think this is just one final point, which is interesting. But somebody had get, said to me a while ago, so I throw into the mix in terms of the dangers um, that I think people I don't know if people are actually aware of this danger. But um, the more you move into a black and white world, you end up with a cult of charismatic leadership, leading, leading a kirov, and the more you can often dumb down the message. And I think that that's an interesting critique, which is if, you, if your goal is to sell Judaism, uh, there are some dangers and pitfalls along the way. And, I, and, and we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of, those, a lot of the negative fallout of those of those of, of, of those approaches, um, and and again, with, what I'm coming back to more and more from our conversations, which I'm really appreciating, is that the really the best way to sell Judaism is to immerse people in mimetic experiences. And Johnny, you said something in the beginning about hero of I forgot how you said it, like text versus something. I don't remember. You said it today, but I think that it's very true that like the best way to do hero is to help people help immerse people in in the thickness, right, the, the, the lived experience of Judaism, because it itself is so powerful, and then it kind of spread out for them, kind of the richness, but like, like have the table set with this incredibly rich feast of experience, of values, of knowledge, of texts, of sources, and, and, and give people the option to kind of dive in at a place where it meets them, whether that's, again, that could be chasidut, that could be there's so many ways to go again it could just be experience but i think that that's that to me is like i'm coming to see that that's the way to go okay so molly i want to pick up and then i'll throw it back to johnny so you asked so we talked about does a religious zionist world do, do kirub so you mentioned the garinim taranim this has been going on for 15 years maybe 20 years more and there are many there are dozens of them around the country mm -hmm. that's one number two there's an entire division of shirut Lumi called zehut where Chibulumi girls, they spend their days in secular schools teaching, literally teaching Yahadut. And while there's been, a, I would say, a, a small vocal backlash in, in very, very uh, specific areas, in general, when I worked in Orod and I would deal with these girls, you know, like giving them you and training days or whatever, the response is overwhelmingly positive. The teachers love it. The kids love it. The parents appreciate it. Yeshivot has there. There was a whole article in Makorishon about a number of yeshivot that have relocated to Tel Aviv, to the center, to cities. Okay. You know, the thing about yeshiva is there in Steyrot. That, that yeshiva is a major yeshiva in the center of a town that literally has, that needs that, not, not just the religious, you know, support, but the fact that there is a yeshiva and that there is a presence, there's a young presence. Steyrot is a, people don't realize, the whole Steyrot area is a growing area in Israel today. People are moving to Steyrot. They're not moving away from Steyrot. No, my son's yeshiva just moved to Tel Aviv, and that's part right. of their uh, mission statement of that, of, for that move. It's very I true. work in Orto Rastone. Orto Rastone has a division called Yachad. Yachad, 
what it does is it has it, it hires people. It's half of it is supported by the government, by the Misrata Datot, actually, interestingly, um, and half by the Achad or the Matnasim, and they hire people to do religious programming in the Matnasim, in the JCCs of Israel. So they'll, they'll do Kabbalah Shabbat and Hanukkah, and you know what I'm saying? So, and these are, these are real religious experiences. So if you ask, are we involved in what you call hard Kirov? No, none of this is hard Kirov, but all of it is is trying to bring uh, the religious public and religious experiences to the, to the Israeli public in a way that they wanted, in a way that, that's welcoming and enriching. I want to go back and say one more point about Johnny. What Johnny said in the beginning was, um, actually, one more thing before I go back to what Johnny said, I'll throw it to Johnny. Does the modern Orthodox community do Kiruv? Even if it's not so hard, I was a rabbi of a modern Orthodox shul. And to be honest with you, very, very few are the people that are literally not religious at all and they're willing to make the jump and become Haredi. But if you think about it, there are many, many people who, who are families, as it were, that are somewhat traditional, that are connected to religious lives, and that when they're looking for a place that will accept them as they are, you know, how many places, how many Haredi places will allow you to drive to shul Come to shul, bring your family, you know, go to the babysitting room, talk in the back, and have a positive experience, an enriching experience. Uh, you know, we don't think about in, in to what degree modern orthodoxy is an, is an opening, a door to, to many, many, I would say hundreds and perhaps thousands of families that otherwise would never be able to, you know, they, they call it in the, in the business world, the bar of entry, the barrier to entry. Like the barrier to entry to an orthodox synagogue is huge. And if you think about the barrier of entry in a modern Orthodox synagogue, now try to think about it in a Haredi synagogue, how intimidating it is to a non-religious person to come in and they're all wearing black hats and they're different and I don't want to be like that. Whereas yeah, when you go Chabad to your modern so Orthodox shul, what? I think that's when why Chabad go, is so successful because they put the bar, the, the, their interest is in erasing that bar. I, I, so I was going to make that point. Chabad is not successful because of that. Chabad is successful for two, for the main reason Chabad is successful is because of what Johnny said. That when you go when the Chabad guy or the Chabad family in wherever, they're there and they've been there your entire life. And they'll visit you in the hospital and they'll bring you chicken soup and they're, they're there for your ch children's birth and they're there for the bar mitzvah and they care about you as a person. And th that's the secret sauce of Chabad. It has very little to do with the shul and the religious experience and the tanya. Mm -hmm. It's all about, like I, I remember clearly, yeah. like, you know, it's all about that when you have something, when you have a need, and you're in the hospital, and it's three o'clock in the morning, that Chabad person who lives in your community is there for you. And then once they're there for you, then you, who cares if the shul is not the shul that you would choose? Because they care about you. And, and that, I think, Johnny, is what you were referring to, the idea of kiruv levavot, of connection. If you feel connected to a person, then you're going to feel connected to them. You'll, you'll be open to what they have to teach you. Okay, Johnny, you have a lot to say, and I, I, I've been dominating. So go ahead. Um. I agree with Kiruv Levavot. Uh, I don't think, uh, I think people are trying to learn the art of Kiruv Levavot and the Dati Lumi world. It was, I think, higher in its priority in the early years of the state. I think Mali is entirely correct that it then dropped down for, uh, and took a much, much lower place in the, in the list of um, priorities for all sorts of reasons, some good and some not so good. And that in recent years, there's been a stirring of the Datilomi mind looking around at the world, the changing world, and the truth is a changing fabric of Israeli society and saying to itself, actually, 
we spoke about responsibility. We have responsibilities and there are things that need to be done. You know, we, we've been doing shout outs for different organizations. And uh, in response to what Ruby just said about synagogues, I'd like to make a brief shout out to the United Synagogue Network in the UK, because it's just about to celebrate its 150th year. And unlike the US, which is a whole different uh, collection of independent shuls mostly, uh, in the UK, the majority of Orthodox shuls, other than the Hasidic Shtibbles, um, are, are associated with a network which has a high bar in terms of expected practice of, of the rabbi and how things are done in the synagogue, but are exceedingly low bar in terms of anybody's welcome. I have a number of friends who work tirelessly for the United Synagogue, and if you get it right, and some shuls get it more right than others, you're able to have a shul where where orthodoxy is absolutely expressed in terms of the values of the shul, but the values of uh, inclusion are absolutely expressed in terms of who feels comfortable going to those synagogues. So the result of the United Synagogue. One final thing, at least in terms Wait, of- John, Johnny, I want to ask you about the United Synagogue because I spent yeah. a week in England and it was you, really a fascinating experience. Although you're in the north of England where most of those shuls are not fully, uh, they're associated but not necessarily full no, But the model is fascinating because the model is correct. Like what you described to me was fascinating. And, and it's on the one end, an Orthodox synagogue, it's like, I thought it more of a, like a Sephardic model where the shul is Orthodox and everybody comes as Orthodox, but it doesn't ask questions about your own personal observance. And I right. saw on the one hand, it was fascinating because on the one end, it's a beautiful thing and a beneficial thing. But on the other end, then it, 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 how do you encourage, I thought in that model where I don't care where you came from and I don't ask you about your observance, how then do you, do you model or encourage people to raise their level of observance. So like, I, I was thinking about this, when you go to a modern Orthodox shul in Teaneck or Passaic or I don't know, or, you know, Jacksonville, Florida. So there's a perception at least, like even if they welcome you in, well, the families are Shomer Shabbat and they're all gonna walk home. And that's so on somebody, if somebody's driving while well, they welcome you and they don't ask you. So if you eventually, if you wanna be a member of that shul, you say to yourself, well, I should be like them in some way. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the model of the United Synagogue, there isn't that subtle, I would say, communal peer pressure to say, well, if you want to be a member of, the, of that community, it requires a certain level of commitment or a certain level of demand that, that will then pass down to your children. I, I was just, I'm thinking about this a lot as I experienced it. I see the positives. I really do. But yet I wonder about what are the trade-offs in, in the terms of the Kiruv that you refer to. And I also would like to salute the United Synagogue. And I know that actually, I have, if we're doing organizational connections, I work with the chief rabbi's office and they do communal promotions and they do like everyone. I think that this idea that modern Orthodox people are not doing Kirov is a, or not trying to engage the broader public is a, is a misconception, a misperception. We do it, but because it's not in your face and because it's not as Kirov, therefore it's not perceived as such. And perhaps that's the right way to do it. One second, you just did a Freudian slip. We're talking about Dati Lumi, and we're now speaking about modern orthodoxy, and we know full well that there's significant overlap, but they are slightly different. So let's just at least acknowledge those differences. I'll briefly respond, but then one, fi one final point in terms of the Dati Lumi world. Um, it, you're right, that conundrum is really central to uh, the leadership of the United Synagogue. I have a lot of friends in senior leadership positions. I was speaking with somebody about this just a few weeks ago. However, there was one further bonus, which is uh, most of the schools, not all, but most of the schools uh, that are, uh, so we say, centrist orthodox in the, in the UK are 
associated with United Synagogues. So synagogues don't see themselves as independent institutions. Not, not only are they part of a network of synagogues, but also part of a network of community service providers with schools and uh, uh, educational settings uh, being very much uh, at the helm. So schools, I wouldn't say always work with schools, but they recognize that they need to work with one another. And there are also other youth organizations similar to NCSY, but they're called tribe that try and fill the gap. So I, I'm, I can list the, the, the things that could be better, but I also, I think, especially given my previous remarks, it's worthwhile nodding heads and saying, if you get it pretty much, uh, if you get the, the, the institutional balance is right, you can have people who come in without feeling a sense of alienation. And you have also follow up in terms of that sense of loyalty. Many of the rabbis also stay there for a long period of time and are there for the life cycle events, which are crucially important. And then that's also uh, connected with the school systems and providing a strong level of, uh, or at least a meaningful level of Jewish education, which can then help people move forward. One final, final thing I need to then uh, wrap up, which is, uh, which is, um, that uh, I did a quick Google search of Kirov Hakim in the Tilomi world, uh, and there was an, a series uh, in Makorishon, they mentioned Makorishon beforehand, and it talked about United States Israel Jewish community relations and how basically we need to be teaching them more about Israel. You see, one thing I think we need to mention is when we, we've spoken about Kirov Hakim or Kirov in terms of pure Torah. But where the confusion has risen is in the Datilomi world, what are we sharing uh, if there's ideas that is to be shared? Is it pure Torah, if you call it that? Or is it a sense of nationalism? And I think sometimes the balance has been slightly imperfect, where the desire to share love of Israel, perhaps not enough desire to share love of the Judaism in Israel, love of Torah Eretz Israel, and perhaps that needs to be refined and addressed more. Uh, moving on to Mali, I believe. I just, I'll just make one point, which is I, I think that I agree with you, uh, Johnny, that you, you, know, you said like the balance is tough and how to get that balance right. I, I don't want to ignore Ruby's uh, question mark, let's say, because I think that it is real, right? These communities, and I think we do see them more outside of, let's say, in, um, not in the U.S., in, in Australia and in England, um, and in maybe even in smaller communities in, in, in America, where you have a more inclusive space, and, and I think there's a lot of positive, in that, and that's what you're describing, but I do think that we do have to think about, there is a trade-off that we do, that we do pay for that, which is that the environments there, there let's be honest, do, do not foster a degree of religious intensity um, that, that maybe we're looking for. And, and I think that it's worth at least putting a question mark there about what do you do about that? Right? Again, I'm thinking about my students who are going back to all their countries of origin and they're like, you know, yeah, and obviously I'm going to join B'nai Akiva and I'm going to be a Madrich or a Madricha, but like, like the, the level is so different than who I am and how do I maintain my level of spirituality? It's not, you know, like we need to find a way to, to make this bridge have a little more people on the bridge so that it's and do, do you know what I'm saying? It's not yeah. just like the people who are very intense and then they're like, there's room for everybody and come with Hashem and light a candle and, and you know. And that raises the whole specter, the problem of the, that they, that I've, I wrote about when I was a rabbi, that the lack of passionate religious people in the more 
modern communities. And therefore that will, that immediately, those people, those students of Mali's that are looking for that passionate spirituality, they're immediately then, drawn to the Haredi yeah, community. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Okay, uh, I guess we'll leave it off here. I, we didn't even raise the, the fascinating question of, is Kirov a good investment of our dollars? Meaning, is, is, is the return, is the ROI worth it? It's a multi-billion dollar industry in Chutzlaretz, and do the, do the results, uh, you know, do they? We didn't raise that issue, which is an entirely separate issue, uh, you know, because I, I, as soon as I saw the question, I was wondering, you know, like, like if you would invest that money in day schools or, or something else, and we also didn't raise the issue of the, in, in, I can speak from the United States, now, fundamentally, the reason why you have so many kolel workers, people going into kolel in the Haredi world, is because they're coming out of yeshiva, they don't have professional training, they need to support their families, and this is a good entree, they can go into Kirov, they can go into campus work, and they can do something, that, that's something that they can do that still stay in Klei Kodesh, whereas you just have a much, much smaller pool in the modern Orthodox world of people who are, you know, in that situation or, are, or who are passionately motivated to go and do that. Those are two other issues. I just want to throw them out, maybe for a future discussion, maybe not, things for us to be aware of. As it's Hanukkah, I want to, we're going to conclude by sharing uh, some thought, idea. I'm not going to share an idea because I'll leave that to Johnny, our resident scholar. I want to share two things. One, in light of our, in light of our, if you haven't heard this, and maybe I'll figure out how to do the intro with this, I don't know if I'm allowed to, is uh, the Star Wars Hanukkah by 613. You, you could just search for it on, on the internet. Like that's, uh, my, my son shared it with me. I thought it was very clever, very cute. Happy Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah. I thought it was very lovely, so you should look it up. Plus, if you haven't seen, there's an underdust, a new underdust video on Hanukkah with these, uh, how can I describe it? Uh, I would call it a car crash of Sufganiyot. You, you have to watch it. Maybe we'll share it on the, on the notes. The, underdog, the new Underdog Hanukkah video. Those are my cultural uh, sharing of uh, in the religious Zionist world, the uh, modern Orthodox world today. Molly. Oh, I'd like to, I probably should hear Johnny's uh, words of uh, Torah before I respond. <laughs> Summit, which is, I did not see that was an underdust. I'm definitely going to watch that with my kids now because underdust is good. And, uh, you know, I always have something to say about Star Wars, which is, eh, it was okay. I like <laughs> the part that you mentioned was the best, the, uh, the, the duel of the fates part. I did not at all like the, when they're like just singing the brachos of, of, uh, of Hanukkah to the tune of Star Wars. I thought it was a little lazy. Uh, sorry, 613. Um, but state of Star Wars today, it has devolved from um, um, cultural and mythological touchstone to uh, just yet another... Uh, All right, Molly, I'm going to have to say this. Let me finish my sentence. You need to seriously um, consider whether Star Wars is a little bit too... How should we too central in your in your worldview? No, it is central in worldview. It is. It is so central in worldview that I remember as a child thinking to myself, "Is this Golvel and Abodazara?" I remember thinking that as a child. Actually, I was in like sixth or seventh grade, but that just speaks to how powerful the mythology is. Um, again, maybe. Wait, one day wait, what was the answer? <laughs> the answer was, well, I have to remember that I don't actually believe in the Force. I believe in God. Um, I believe in one God. And now I would say um, I'm not a Buddhist because that's really what, uh, what the force is. Uh, I'm actually a Jew, not a Buddhist, although I do actually have a lot of um, kind of affiliations and, and appreciation for a lot of, um, a, a lot of Buddhist uh, tenets. So I'll just leave it there. No, it's, okay, let me just say one thing because this is going to pull it into Hanukkah. For me, the most important message of Hanukkah is that we can um, appreciate other cultures, 
and engage from other cultures, but we have to be extremely rooted and, and grounded and clear about the fact that our, our home, our spiritual and religious and uh, ideological uh, and emotional home is, is Judaism, God, and the Torah. And I, I feel like sometimes that gets a little bit lost. Maybe it's, it sounds obvious to people, but it's not so obvious to me when people think it's the people sometimes allied. And I'll just make, I'll just throw one bomb out there. I hated Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, I was like, that is, American people were like, oh, let's make a menorah out of a turkey and it's so adorable. I'm like, that's not adorable. That's exactly what the um, Maccabean were fighting against. So that's just a sentence to throw a bomb. People are going to violently disagree with me. But again, to me, Hanukkah is really about our identity and our pride, and it doesn't, again, I, 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 the message is not, therefore we are anti-Hellenism and we are anti-Greek culture. We pick and choose, but we are firmly rooted in our own culture. I would just say, I think that connects to what you, you said, that we have to see, we have to promote the idea of Nerod Hanukkah as what they, what, they, what they represent religiously, and they're not just something cultural that you see on a billboard. And that's something that we have to promote. All right, Johnny, save us. Oh, but I forgot to ask also the ever important question. Molly, Sufganiyot or Latkes? Just answer one word. Like, I can't. <laughs> half a Sufganiyot and half a Latka. Oh, God, that was really sad. That's so oh, religious scientist of you. Oh, my that's goodness. I will just okay. say I am, I am firmly in the Latka camp. I think we have too much sweetness and too much sugary goodness in the world. People need to, you know, have the solid basis of fried too potatoes. Much Johnny, goodness. No, you sound like a good. Okay. Johnny, there's been more sufganiyot in our house, regrettably. Um, and just to, two quick things. Uh, actually, one every year it moves me. Uh, when I lived in Chutz Haaretz, um, uh, grew up, we lit candles inside the home. You know, the Ramai read makes reference to this. He's got the Shulchan Aruch. And one of the first things I did, having made Aliyah, is I bought one of those boxes to light menorah uh, outside the home. And each year we do so, and it, each year it just moves me. Um, and every Hanukkah I go for a walk with my kids and look around at the, the Hanukkah lit outside of the homes mostly. And just the, the fact that Hanukkah is celebrated literally on the street, not just in homes, but literally on the street, is such a beautiful, amazing thing. One quick idea I've shared already on Facebook by the Sanzarov, um, because it, we're told in Shulchanach that we generally try and light the, Chanuk, light the Chanukiah uh, within 10 Tfachim. Uh, most people often don't do that, certainly in, uh, in Chutzarets, because we're lighting inside the home. Many people in my neighborhood light the Chanukiah outside on like a, a low chair uh, to meet that requirement. And he explains that one of the ideas of Hanukkah is to share the light, as we were talking about before. And this reminds us that the light's accessible to anybody. If we talk about how low the bar is, well, the menorah is lit low. Not to bring physical light to the world, but to bring spiritual light and inspire others. And to his mind, there's a profound message to be learned by lighting the Hanukkah there, low to the ground, uh, illuminating the world. And so I go for a walk every year and, uh, and just delight with my kids and say, Baruch Hashem, we can live like this. Baruch Hashem, we can share what we do. And Baruch Hashem, we should celebrate more Hanukkahs together with more and more Jews. Amen. I'll just mm -hmm. I'll, I'll echo that, Johnny. I, I go running, like I have to run at night because it uh, gets so dark. I, so I went for a run the first night of Hanukkah. And just like, it's, it's so like spiritually uplifting. Every house you try, you, you go by. I mean, that only highlights the whole discussion because I happen to live in a religious yeshuv. So every single house, <laughs> you go by every yeah. single one, you know, and it's a, it's, uh, like you said on the outside, it's very interesting when you said that 
So the first few years I was here, we would light inside. And then like a few years later, so now I light outside and the kids light inside. And it's, it, it, you know, it's a fascinating question of like uh, the, the, the shift on the one hand, like I always did it inside. Now should I do it outside? And many people do it outside. I was Molly, are you we guys insider outsiders? Oh, so we have a, <laughs> my husband lights outside. I light inside. My kids light inside at a different uh, window. That way everything is covered. <laughs> okay. I will just stop by saying, finish by saying, happy Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> have, a good, have a good one, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.